0: Well, good afternoon, Zoe Community Church. Very glad to be together with you this afternoon. My name is Kenny. If I haven't met you yet, it's good to good to kind of meet you, I guess. Um, I'm the pastoral resident here, and I have the privilege of preaching today, and I'm excited to hear from the Word of God uh, together with all of you. So as we start off, uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought that you understood a situation that you were in only to realize that you had completely misjudged it? Maybe only to realize that there were questions and considerations that you should have thought of but didn't. Maybe you're thinking back to some particularly silly uh, examples in your own life, but there's one that comes to mind for me. Years ago, I was applying for a job I was applying for a job as a teacher at a Christian school, and I'd seen the job, uh, the job posting, and I sent in the application basically on a whim, not expecting to hear anything back. But I was amazed that after a couple of weeks, I did get an email back asking for an interview. I was even more stunned when that first interview went really well. Uh, and then they scheduled me for a second interview, and that interview went well too with the dean. So to my bewilderment, I had made it past the first two rounds of interviews. There were probably five in total. So I got scheduled for a third interview, and this was going to be with the whole faculty of the school. So it was going to be important. And I prepared in meticulous detail. So as I was thinking, as I was thinking and preparing, I thought, you know, they're going to want somebody who's clearly a mature Christian. So I spent hours poring over the school's statement of faith and just thinking about any which kind of theological question they might ask me so that I could answer in just the right nuanced way. I was thinking they would want someone who fit their institutional aims, and so I looked at the school's mission statement for a long time and I wrote out how I was the embodiment, nay, the veritable incarnation of their school ethos. I thought they would want somebody personable and put together. So I got a haircut. I picked out my best suit, shirt, and tie. Since the interview was going to be on Zoom, I even raised up my webcam so there wouldn't be any gross double chin action from being from the camera being too low. So after all the preparation, I felt nervous, but I felt ready. So finally the day came, and I logged on to that Zoom meeting, and different faculty started popping into the meeting, and eventually there were 20 pairs of eyeballs staring at me. There were a few minutes of pleasantries and getting to know you questions, but I felt pretty good. People were smiling. They seemed interested. But then one faculty member raised her hand, and she said, Mr. Trax, I have a question. Can you tell us What is your philosophy of teaching? Time seemed to stand still, at least for me, because I had not prepared an answer to a question like that. In fact, I realized I really hadn't prepared how to answer any questions about teaching. And I was applying to be a teacher. So those 20 pairs of eyeballs were staring at me. I stammered. I came up with some kind of an answer that I can't remember now. But after I stopped speaking, the silence hung in the air for just a little too long. And uh, the professor who had asked the question said with a hint of disappointment, Thank you. There was a part of me that knew at that moment that I was done for. And sure enough, I did not get that job. Now, in retrospect, I'm so glad I didn't get that job for many reasons But looking back, I can see that I presumed quite a bit about what that process was going to look like. I presumed that I knew what the school was looking for, but I failed to really consider the question from their perspective. What does this school really want from me? I presumed they were looking for a theologian, an institutional representative, but I failed to realize that what they wanted most was a teacher. I was looking for a job. They were looking for a teacher. Now, my presumptions got me into trouble in that job interview. And presumption can get us into trouble in many other aspects of life. Lots of us bring presumptions about God, about religion, and about what's really important about Christianity when we show up to church, even a church service like this one. You know, we can go for years to church, And never really stopped to ask the question, what does God really want from me? What does all this mean from his perspective? So I ask you, have you ever stopped to to ask that question? What does God really want from you? What's the point of church, worship, prayer, religion? Do you presume to know the answer? But just like my presumptions in the job interview were my undoing, so also our presumptions about these things can lead us astray. And actually, we can miss the point of it all. We can miss the point of all of this religious stuff that we do if we fail to root out those presumptions. So as, uh, as Dan mentioned, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes again this afternoon, continuing in our series. We're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So you can turn there now. Ecclesiastes, if you haven't been with us, is a wisdom book. It's in the Old Testament. It's roughly halfway uh, between the covers of your Bible. So Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. In this passage, in chapter 5, Solomon, the author, is going to warn us about presuming that we know what true religion is about. We're going to see that biblical religion is relational, and involves truly listening to God, recognizing our humble standing before him, and submitting our lives to him. So we're in Ecclesiastes 5. As I said, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. Let me read those for us before we get started. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So we're not dropping new into Ecclesiastes out of nowhere. We've been going through this book uh, slowly. At our church, we preach expositionally which means that we seek to expose the meaning of the biblical text rather than impose our own agendas or questions upon it. And one part of expositional preaching generally is just to preach through whole books of the Bible. So we've been working through Ecclesiastes, and now we're in chapter 5. We're here to, to try to understand what God would say to us through this scripture. So in past sermons, we've been hearing what the preacher, King Solomon, has been saying, And what he's been saying has perhaps been surprising if you've been here for it. He's been shining a light on the apparent futility and vanity of so much of our daily lives. And sometimes I think he's he's kind of saying things that we're generally afraid to say, especially in church. I mean, we expect him to say that pleasure-seeking is vain, for example. But I know that it hit me. I was even a bit surprised when he starts talking about the vanity of work the vanity of relationships, the vanity of wisdom and life and death. And he's talking about it as if you pursue those things apart from God. But still, it's surprising. But Solomon hasn't just been tearing down in Ecclesiastes, though, has he? He's also been building up. He's been trying to give us tools for living rightly. He knows that we're going to have work. He knows that we're going to have relationships. We're going to live our lives. And God, writing through Solomon is concerned that we know how to do these things well, that we know how to live life well. And now in our present passage, Solomon turns his gaze to religion, to the worship of the true God. Yet even here, he warns, lurks the danger of vanity. He warns that it's possible even for our religious exercises to be vain or empty rather than meaningful or significant. But really... At least to us, 21st century Americans, we kind of know this danger intuitively already, don't we? We know that the word religion usually has a negative connotation these days. It conjures up ideas of empty rituals, of oppressive power structures. We know already that religion can end up being the most vain thing of all, the most empty thing of all, right? And Solomon knows that too which is why he starts talking about religion now, and he's going to warn us how to do this well. We who sit here in church services, and many of us calling ourselves Christians, need to hear his warnings. So before we get into the text, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to gather around your word. We thank you that you are a loving God, that you desire a relationship with each one of us, and you accomplished, you did what needed to be done to, to make that relationship possible when you sent uh, your son Jesus to the cross to die on, on behalf of our sins, Father. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you laid down your life uh, willingly. Lord, we pray that that as we go through the text today that you'd give us humble hearts. We pray that you'd expose what's in our hearts so that if there is sin, that we would repent of it. And I pray ultimately that we would grow to fear you more, that we would fear you in the sense of humbly and reverently uh, knowing you and loving you and worshiping you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So to give you an outline for this afternoon, we're going to see three presumptions and a prescription in this text. Three presumptions and a prescription. Point number one, first presumption, is presumptuous praise. Presumptuous praise. And we see that in verse one. We're going we're gonna to see that oftentimes we can presume that religious deeds matter more than obeying God from the heart. So let me, let me read verse one again. Take a look at that. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So Solomon starts off here and he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So thus far in Ecclesiastes, Solomon has been instructing us. He's been doing it through observations and examples. But actually, this is the first command to the readers, to us in the text the first direct command and imperative, telling us to do something. I think it shows that Solomon thinks this aspect of our lives, the worship of God, is important. He speaks directly to his readers and he says, guard your steps, or the way we would say it today, watch out, watch out. He's saying, watch out when you go to the house of God. Now, the house of God back then was the temple. And if you've read other parts of the Bible, you know that Solomon... Paid for the temple, he helped build the temple, and God dwelt there with a physical presence. But there aren't temples exactly today. Rather than physical temples, actually the people of God are the temple of God today. First Corinthians 3, 16-17 says this really clearly. The Apostle Paul says, "'Do you not know that you are God's temple "'and that God's Spirit dwells in you? "'God's temple is holy, and you are that temple.'" he says to the Corinthian church. So Zoe Community Church, we are God's temple as well. God dwells among us, and he dwells among us in a special way when we're gathered together. So what Solomon is saying here, just to sum up, is he's saying that there's a right way and there's a wrong way to come into God's house. There's a right way and a wrong way to come to the temple. There's a right way and a wrong way to approach God's people. Now, already for some of us, this may be surprising. For some of us, church is just something that we do without thinking. Sometimes we can even act as if what matters is just showing up. As long as I'm there, that's what matters. It doesn't matter how I'm there. We can treat church kind of like those obligatory work meetings that some of us have had. I don't have any in a, in uh this job that I'm in now, but... uh but there's been meetings in previous jobs where, you know, all that all that's important is that you are there in that chair in the meeting room or your face is there on the screen in the Zoom meeting. And we can treat church like this too. But we're wrong to treat church like that. Just showing up for religious duties is not only less than ideal, as we might expect, it's less than ideal if I'm in the meeting but I'm zoned out or I'm playing video games or whatever, It's not only less than ideal to just show up at church and not be engaged, but actually the scripture says that it's evil. It says it in verse 1. Take a look at verse 1 again. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Now we need to take this apart to understand understand what's going on. Solomon is setting up a contrast of two ways of showing up. Two ways of showing up to the people of God in the temple of God. Listening and the sacrifice of fools. So let's take apart that second part so that we can understand. So let's talk about what he means by sacrifice here. Now offering sacrifices to God was an important part of worshiping God in Solomon's day, back in Old Testament times. And it involved killing an animal such as a bull or a goat, and offering the blood and the meat as a gift to God, burning it up on an altar. But it's important to know uh, that there are different kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament, actually. There's multiple kinds, and they had different purposes, too. So the one that may be most familiar to those of us who have been in church a while is the whole burnt offering. The whole burnt offering, or in Hebrew, it's the olah, the olah, sacrifice, and that was the sacrifice you gave in atonement for sin. It's a sacrifice you offered when you were asking God to forgive you for your sin. And in the whole burnt offering, kind of like the name implies, you offer up the whole animal. You put the whole animal on the altar and burn it all up until there's nothing left. But actually, that's not the that's not the sacrifice that uh, Solomon is talking about here. And you can see it in Hebrew. He uses a different word. The word here is zavah, zavah. This is the zavah sacrifice. It's the peace offering, or the fellowship offering. In the fellowship offering, worshipers killed the animal, but they only offered up the blood and the fat of the animal on the altar when they gave the peace offering. But they ate the rest of the animal as part of a communal meal with God. The idea was that with the zavah, with the peace offering, you were giving. God a gift in order to fellowship with Him. It's almost like you were inviting God to dinner. You were inviting God to dinner so that you could fellowship. And it wasn't about removing sin, but it was about celebrating the communion with God that you have already. It was about celebrating that by God's grace you were good with God. And this is an important point. God is personal. God is relational. And the primary blessing of the Garden of Eden was not immortality or anything like that, but the primary blessing was the presence of God with Adam and Eve. But after they sinned, we lost that blessing of God's presence. But the direction of the Bible is moving from exile from from God's presence back to communion with Him. God desires a relationship with each one of us, and that's... One of the reasons why this zavah sacrifice, the fellowship offering, exists at all, because God wanted to commune with His people. And it's also the reason why Jesus later instituted the Lord's Supper, and we call it what communion, communion, so that we too could commune with God in a special way, even before Christ returns and dwells with us forever. So the sacrifice in view here is the zavah. It's the fellowship the fellowship sacrifice, the way that you spent time with God, in a way, in the Old Testament. So that's the sacrifice part, but now we need to talk about the fool part. And this is not the Mr. T, I pity the fool. There is a specific definition of a fool from the Bible. Listen to some of these scriptures. A fool, biblically, is someone who hates knowledge, Proverbs 122. A fool has no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 18.2 A fool thinks that doing wrong is just a joke. Proverbs 10.23 But I think below all of this, the root of all of this, we can see in Psalm 14.1 The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. He might talk about God, he might do religious things, but in his heart, he doesn't believe that God is real. So let's put these together now. What is the sacrifice of fools that is actually evil in the end? We need to understand that. It's not a sacrifice done in the wrong way. It's a sacrifice offered by the wrong kind of person in the sense that it's offered by a fool. Because the fellowship offering was supposed to invite fellowship with God. But when given by a fool who doesn't actually believe in God, doesn't care about God, it becomes vain and empty. The giver of the sacrifice may say and do all the right things, but in his heart, he doesn't even really think that God cares. So the problem isn't the act itself, but the heart attitude of the person offering the sacrifice. And that's the sacrifice that is evil. Now, we need to hear this in our day and age. In our culture, people often have an idea of God as a lonely grandpa who is just happy to get any kind of attention from us. And when you see God depicted in cartoons or TV shows, he kind of has the lonely grandpa vibe. But Solomon's words here should dispel that misconception because he says there is such a thing as a sacrifice of fools, and that thing is evil. So the heart of a fool ruins that person's religion. The outer forms could be there, but they're worthless. So what's better than that? Then there's a contrast, remember? What's better than the sacrifice of fools? Well, to draw near to listen, Solomon says. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. What is better than a fool's sacrifice is a humble heart ready to hear from God and ready to obey God. The idea of listening in the Bible implies not just hearing, but also obedience. And we, we get this, right? If your child doesn't do what you ask them to do, you're likely to say, hey, buddy, you didn't listen to me. He may have heard you, but he didn't obey, so therefore he didn't listen. So the first presumption that Solomon attacks is our presumptuous tendency to give our praises and sacrifices and offerings to God while refusing to humble ourselves before him and to receive instruction from him. We're fine with offering our sacrifices by sitting in the pew or giving money or serving in church ministries, but we refuse to listen and let God's words address our sins and call us to account. Biblical scholar Derek Kidner memorably summed this all up and I like this quote. He's talking about uh, about what Solomon's saying here, and he says, Solomon is talking about the person who likes a good sing, the person who likes a good sing and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear, never quite gets round to what he has volunteered to do for God. Such a man has forgotten where and who he is. Above all, he has forgotten who God is. So in light of this scripture, each of us needs to ask ourselves, why do I come to church? Are we here for a good sing? Or are we here to listen to God? Will we let him confront our sins and speak into our inner lives in such a way that we cannot coddle or protect sin any longer? Will we listen? If we think that we can offer God our presence in the pew or our daily quiet times, or our repeated prayers, but hold him at arm's length when he really wants to purge us of our sin and make us holy, then those things that we're doing are just the sacrifice of fools, and they're evil. In another place, God said it clearly, First Samuel fifteen twenty-two. to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. So what God really wants is our hearts and lives given over to him, not our offerings and our sacrifices. Listening to God then means hearing the word of God preached and asking, how does this call me to change? Listening to God means not ignoring the prick of your conscience when you realize your sinful motives in a given situation. Listening to God means taking practical steps to make God the priority in your life, whatever that looks like for you. Listening to God means acting on the biblical truths you already know. So if you have been physically here at church but refusing to listen, I ask will you now open your ears to God's word? Will you let him discipline you as a loving father does with a son? Or will you hold him off until he must eventually deal with you as a fool? This call to listen to God leads us to the second presumption, Solomon addresses point number two, presumptuous platitudes, presumptuous platitudes, verses two and three. And these verses expose our tendency to speak about God without appreciating who he is. So let me read verses two and three again. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Religion often involves a lot of talking, doesn't it? Especially at our church. There's a lot of talking at our church. I'm doing it right now. But Solomon has a warning for us, for all of us. He says not to be rash with our mouths, not to let our hearts be hasty to speak before God. And he's building off of the previous point that as we come to the Lord and to his temple to listen to him, so we should not be overly eager to fill the silence with our own words or even to talk over the Lord. And he gives two reasons, two reasons that we must not indulge in hasty spiritual speech, but that we should in let instead let our words be few, as it says. Now, the first reason is in verse 2. So take a look at verse 2 again. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Reason number one, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Solomon's words direct us to recognize that God is not a petty tyrant to be placated with babbling, but the awesome ruler of the universe whom we have the privilege to know and worship. And he does this by pointing at the space between God and us. In this present life, we humans are confined to earth, but God rules all from his throne in heaven. It's important to understand what's not being said here. Just as a side note, he's not saying that God is limited to heaven in any way. It's not like earth belongs to us, heaven belongs to God. The Lord is a spirit, and he's not bound in any way by space. Rather, this statement highlights God's sovereign control over all the universe as he rules from heaven. There is a theologian in the 4th century, the 300s, named Gregory of Nyssa, and he said that God is, quote, as high above earthly calculation as the stars are above the touch of our fingers. I love that image. He's as high above earthly calculation as the stars are above the touch of our fingers. That's the feeling that we're supposed to have here. And Isaiah 66, 1-2 that we read earlier makes the same point. Moving from God's sovereign rule in heaven to our humble response here on earth. It says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. All these things in creation my hand has made so that all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So God's majesty should lead us to humility and a willingness to confess just how little we can comprehend Him. But how many of us are good at filling the air with spiritual-sounding platitudes? I know there's been times for me, maybe when I've been praying aloud, praying aloud in a group, and my mind starts to wander, but the pious words keep coming out of my mouth. I'm not thinking about God anymore, but the words are still coming out. Or, I've been praying in a group again, and I've started focusing more on the amens, or the mm's, that I get in response as people are listening. Start focusing on those things instead of focusing on God. I'm not thinking about God at that point, but I'm thinking about me, and I'm thinking about performing for other people. I've been guilty of that. There's no problem with beautiful prayers or anything like that, but the problem is that there's a kind of hasty religious talk that can end up drowning out God's voice and distracting from God, actually. So we should be wary of profuse prayers and excessive God talk that can draw attention away from the Lord. I was struck by something uh, R. Kent Hughes, a pastor, said. He said, Sometimes even prayer can be prayerless. Even prayer can be prayerless. Simply repeating pious words does not mean that our, sorry, simply repeating pious words does not mean that our words come from a pious heart. That's what he said. Woe to us if we are like those of whom the prophet Isaiah said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And Jesus quoted that when he was talking to the Pharisees to convict them of hypocrisy. Because ultimately, that's what it is. So, one reason to let our words be few is is because of God's majesty, recognizing God's majesty, and being humbled by that. But there's another reason to let our words be few, and it's in verse 3. The second reason is because a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. So this word dream just the normal word for dream, but here it seems to kind of refer to daydreams, our tendency to daydream. And as we daydream, as our minds run to and fro, inevitably our minds go to our business, whatever our business may be. We're at church, but we're thinking about the work week. We're at church, but we're thinking about dinner. We're thinking about football or fantasy football or any number of things. But ultimately we're at church Why? To behold God, right? To worship God. And if worshiping God is our aim, it should lead us to quiet those daydreams, quiet those busy thoughts, and put us into a receptive posture. When we behold something truly magnificent, when we're struck by it, we realize intuitively the proper response is quiet awe and few words. Now, my wife and I uh, grew up in California, and uh, about six months after we got married, we got in a car and drove to Louisville, Kentucky, because we were moving there. Uh, so if you, if you did that drive all at once, it would be about 30 hours. Uh, thankfully, we did not do it that way. Um, we split it up into, into different days, and one thing that we did was visit some national parks that we didn't think we would see otherwise. And one place that we went was called Natural Bridges National Monument in Utah. Natural Bridges National Monument. I'm saying it again in case you're going to write it down. Um, it was cool. Natural Bridges National Monument. So what's what's cool about this place is that it is uh, it was designated the first international dark sky park. So what that means is that the National Park Service went around all over the continental U.S. and they determined. That this park had the darkest sky of any of the parks. Here you could see the sky most clearly with the least light pollution. With very few electric lights dampening the view. So for that reason, we went and camped there one night. And, uh, we went and looked at the stars and man, it, it was truly awe inspiring. I mean, if you've ever been out camping or been, been away from kind of the city lights, and you've looked up at the sky, you know what I'm talking about. There were more stars than I'd ever seen in my life. It seemed like there were more stars than there was black space in between. And I'm not exaggerating. I couldn't believe it. The Milky Way was so clear. And our response was just that we sat there in silence for a really long time. We were just quietly beholding the beauty of God's creation. In a similar vein, then, we need to ask ourselves, do my words detract from or make space for beholding the glory of God? When our minds are set on our dreams and our business soon enough, that's what's coming out of our mouths as well. But our hasty words, even in in small talk, even in catching up on a Sunday, can actually, unintentionally, I think, Draw attention away from God. Did you know there are some Christians that explicitly prohibit, quote, unnecessary thoughts, words, or works about our worldly employments or recreations, end quote, on a Sunday? So they say, don't talk about work any more than you have to. Don't talk about recreation. Don't talk about football. Now, while while I don't agree that that's required by Scripture, I don't think it's required by Scripture. I think there's wisdom that we can learn from here. Why not make an extra effort on the Lord's day to focus on the Lord and the things of the Lord? Why not, as we're catching up with one another after the service, to be sure to direct our conversation towards spiritual ends? Why not allow a little more silence in our lives on the Lord's day so that he might apply his word to our lives? Why not turn off the TV a little bit earlier on a Sunday? Because it's so easy to unintentionally deflect ourselves and others away from real thought and conversation about the real God when we hastily turn the conversation toward our worldly employments and recreations. And I speak to myself as I say this. But this passage calls us to let our words be few and well chosen when we're gathered for the worship of God. So just to retrace where we've been, Before we move on, Solomon has alerted us to the sin of presumptuous praise. He's flagged the sin of presumptuous platitudes. And thirdly, the last presumption is presumptuous promises. Presumptuous promises in verses 4 through 6. And the issue here is that we can speak as if God isn't actually listening. So verses 4 through 6. When you vow a vow to God... Do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So vows are what's in view here. And vows are promises, right? Vows are promises to do something. And we we know this. Marriage vow, I think, is the most common way that we think about vows in our culture. But back in Bible times, making a vow to God was just was one way that you could worship him. You could promise to do something or not to do something or to give him something. If you're familiar with stories in the Bible, you may remember the Nazarite vow, not cutting your long hair. That was a vow. But importantly, vows were not required. Nobody was going to force you to take a vow. They were not a required part of worshiping God. But these verses in Ecclesiastes alert us to a problem. People had a tendency to make vows and then delay in paying them or not follow through at all on the promise. And then they'd make excuses. This is very human, isn't it? I see myself in this a bit. People in Bible times made excuses too. You see that? Look at verse 6. We see a silly excuse there. It says, Do not say before the messenger, the person who's come to collect on the vow, that actually their vow was a mistake. Don't say, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. I misspoke. You misheard me. Because you meant it at the time. And that lying, that's lying and that's a sin as verse 6 makes clear. If you vow and don't follow through, you've broken a promise and your mouth has led you into sin. But there's one thing that, that these people who vow and delay have failed to appreciate, and that's the fact that God has an opinion on all this. God has an opinion. They haven't sufficiently reflected on the question, how does God feel about these broken promises? But the rest of verse 6 tells us, take a look. First, it says, why should God be angry? at your voice. First response from God is that God is angry. He's angry when we break promises given, given to him or before him. But it's important to, to hear, to hear this too, that God's anger is not like our anger. It's not spontaneous. It's not a spontaneous reaction, but it's a pure, settled and righteous response to true injustice. God's anger is not like our anger because it's never sinful and it only manifests itself in ways that are appropriate to the sin committed. So that's one response of God's anger. But secondly, it says, God may destroy the work of the hands of the person who lied. And again, we need to understand what's being said here and what's not being said. This is not God lashing out like a child, knocking down your tower of blocks because you knocked down his. This is God reacting appropriately fairly, and justly as a punishment for sin. God's justice is always fair. So Solomon highlights here the need to follow through on the promises that a worshiper makes to God. Now we know know that following through is essential in many aspects of life. Now, I am not athletic by any means. Some of you know this already. Some of you have seen me in action. I'm not athletic, but I think back to when my dad was teaching me to swing a baseball bat. You know, when you swing a baseball bat, you have to keep the bat going after you make contact. You have to follow through all the way so that the momentum goes with the ball. Just like following through the motion is essential in sports like baseball, so also following through on promises is required of anybody who truly worships God because God cares about the follow through. These verses are easily applicable to us, aren't they? We have a tendency to promise things to God and not follow through. Maybe there's been a time when you've been caught up in the passion of a worship experience or under a feeling of conviction of sin and you've vowed something to God. Maybe you've said, I promise God I will never do that thing again. Or I promise I will read my Bible every day whatever it may be, but after a few days, you do that thing again or you stop reading your Bible. Maybe we tell somebody how much we're going to give to the church or in a Christmas offering, but then when it comes time to write the check or fill out the online form, we round down, way down. But why would we vow to God and not pay? Why would we do this? Well, I think there's two. Two reasons come to mind. Vows make us feel good in the moment, and vows make us look good to other people. But we need to hear Solomon's wisdom here. Better to vow, better not to vow, rather, and just do it. Don't say the vow, just do it, rather than vow and not pay. And verse four hits the nail on the head because it says, God has no pleasure in fools. If you vow and don't pay, what are you but a fool? What am I but a fool? So we need to follow through on promises to God and promises said before God. But I think, just to dig a little bit deeper, I think this passage exposes a subtler problem as well, and that is a tendency to forget that God is relational and that he's really listening. He's really listening to all the things that we say, and he has an opinion. Even though God is transcendent, and unchanging, he is personal, and he's truly relating to each one of us daily, and he cares what we say to him. I can't make a promise to an inanimate object. Making a promise requires a personal connection, but if we casually break promises to God, we're kind of acting like he's an inanimate object. We're kind of acting like he's the force from Star Wars or something. We're treating him as if he's abstract and not personal, but that's just not true. So, since God is relational, He cares whether we make presumptuous promises. We must avoid them and instead be people of integrity whose yes means yes and no means no. So, we've seen three presumptions in this passage. Presumptuous praise, presumptuous platitudes, and presumptuous promises. These are all pitfalls that we can fall into, into our worship, in our worship of God. And at the beginning of verse seven, Solomon sums up where we've been so far with his favorite word. You know what it is, vanity. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. Our presumptions, far from pleasing God, actually end up as empty, vapor-like, and insubstantial, worthless. The end, let's go home. No. No. This is Solomon's pattern, if you've noticed. Repeatedly throughout the book, Solomon traces out the worldly under-the-sun perspective to the point of despair. Honestly, there's been times listening to Jesse preach, it's not because of Jesse, it's because of Scripture. I've been feeling despair. I'm like, man, how do we come back from this? But Solomon traces out the the under-the-sun perspective, and then... He catapults us above the sun to see God's perspective. And that's exactly what he does here. Solomon points to hope and to the way forward right at the end, at the end of verse 7. So let me read verse 7 again. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So here at the end, after the three presumptions, we have a prescription. What can we do about these proud perversions of God's grace? How can we get around our sinful tendency to deflect from the glory of God? And the answer is that we fear God. The answer is that we fear God. So this is the final point, the prescription. Fear God. The prescription. Fear God. Now, this idea of fearing God is easily misunderstood. Solomon is not saying that we should be utterly terrified terrified of God afraid that he's going to crush us at any moment. That's not what he's talking about. But rather, the fear of God is the root of worshiping God. Now, this sort of fear is a humble, trembling awe and reverence of God. Now, in fact, we've actually already seen the fear of God in action in in this passage today. Do you know where it is? Well, if you think back to verse 2, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, Therefore, let your words be few. When we realize that God is in heaven, we are on earth, we recognize how awesome he is and how puny we are, we let our words be few before his majesty. That's the fear of God in a nutshell. A humbling, trembling, reverent awe of God that leads to a godly response. So when Solomon gives a prescription for curing presumption, His prescription is fear God. Fear God. Recognize truly who he is and who you are and take the appropriate actions. So as we close, let's think about this for ourselves. What does fearing God look like in our day and age? Well, I think it depends on who you are. I'm going to speak to a few different groups. One group that may be in the room. Maybe you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you've only recently started coming to church and learning about Jesus and God. And if this is you, I want you to understand that the fact that you are here today is no accident. God has brought you here to hear the gospel and to hear the good news. Now, as you've been listening to this sermon, you may have noticed that we've not primarily been talking about behavior modification. We haven't been talking about how we can clean ourselves up for God to be worthy of his love. But instead, we've been talking about our hearts and the danger of our hearts leading us away from God. Now, you need to understand that the problem with humanity is that all of us have hearts that would rather do basically anything other than submit to God as king. We would rather do anything than submit to God. All of us have rebelled against his righteous rule and attempted to put something else on the throne of our lives, whether that's ourselves or our own comfort, or the praise of people, or financial security, or any number of things. But you need to recognize that you have sinned against God when you've done that. You've sinned against God when you've committed idolatry. That's what that is. And you've sinned against God in other ways, too, when you've broken his righteous rules. This is the common plight of humanity. If you are to rightly fear God, if you're in this category... And what you need to do is you need to humble yourself before God and receive the free gift he's given to rescue you from the punishment that you deserve. That gift is his own son, Jesus, the son of God who willingly became human in order to die on the cross as our substitute. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, you can be saved from your sin. And the Bible includes the amazing truth that God loved the world so much That he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That could be you. You could have eternal life today. So fear God by accepting the gift of Christ if you have not yet done so. But let me speak to another type of person here. You aren't new to Christianity. In fact, you've been in church a lot throughout your life. Much of what has been said today has sounded familiar. Some of it even kind of feels like old hat. You attend church when you can, but you're wary of getting too deep in and making too many connections. You show up, but you keep God and others at arm's length. So if this is you, how should you fear God? Well, let me suggest, friend, that you are the type of person who's primarily uh, targeted here by this scripture. You're primarily the one that Solomon is talking to. He's talking to religious people. He's warning religious people that so much of our religion is actually presumption. Such religion does not save. And as verse 1 says, it's actually anti-God and evil. Now It's evil because you're willing to make sacrifices to God. You're willing to show up. You're willing to talk about God. You're willing to make promises to God, but you're not willing to listen to him. You're not willing to humble yourself before him or admit that he has a claim on you. The Lord Jesus himself has sobering words for you, if this is you. He says in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who confesses the name of Christ will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you hear that? You could have done miracles in the name of Jesus even without truly being known by him. So you too need to fear God. You need to realize who he is as the king of the universe, and admit that you have resisted his will, you need to repent of your sins of autonomy and godlessness and turn to the Lord. But if this is you and you're in this category, friend, I want you to know that the Lord extends his hand to you today. He extends his hand to you today, and he is pleading with you right now. I'm pleading with you, and that's coming from God. Truly, if you turn to Him, you will find Him to be a merciful Savior. You will find Him to be a merciful Savior. He, God, is not going to hold any previous stubbornness against you. He's not going to hold sins over your head. Isn't that great? Rather, Scripture says of believers from Psalm 103 that as far as the east is from the west, So far has he removed our transgressions from us. And that can be true for you today too. Even if you've heard a thousand sermons before this and never repented of your sin, Jesus will joyfully receive you if you turn to him today. And I understand for some in this category, you've been consciously resisting God. You've been consciously resisting God. Now, that's a sin that you need to repent of. But God will accept you mercifully, even if that's you, even if you've been spurning him for so long. He desires you. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Some have not been consciously resisting God. Maybe you haven't even realized you've been doing this to God. And if that's you, man, repent now be received back with open arms by the Lord. He will welcome you and he will show you mercy. He loves to show mercy to sinners like you, sinners like me. Finally, let me address one other group in the room. You would say that you love the Lord, but you find that so often your presumptions and your pride and your sinful heart can rear up against you. You look at Ecclesiastes 5 and you're sad to say that you see yourself in some of these presumptions. So if this is you, how do you fear God? Well, if you find that you're too quick to speak, that you make promises you don't keep, that you care too much about other people's perceptions of you, that your mind wanders in prayer, brother, sister, remember the fearful price that God paid for your sin, that Christ paid on the cross, and remember the great love that drove him to do that. Remember Hebrews 12.2, which says that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. And what was that joy? That joy was to glorify God, but it was also to save sinners, to save sinners like you and like me. So I encourage you, one way immediately to fear God, that we can practice together, is to listen to the songs that we're about to sing, the songs of grace we're about to sing, and join in the praise of God as you marvel at his mercy and forgiveness to somebody like you, to somebody like me. And let's go from here resolving to really listen to God through his word and to do our religious exercises, to do church as a personal act of devotion to him. Let's pray. Lord, uh, there have been heavy pointed things in this sermon. But God, I thank you that it is not your will that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And the gospel is to be offered freely to all. Lord, I pray that your spirit would regenerate hearts even today. If there is anyone in this room who does not yet know you or has spurned you for a long time, O oh Lord, I pray that you would expose their sin to them, that they would repent, that they would turn away from that sin and turn to you and find you to be the gracious, merciful Savior that you really are. Oh Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for this person. And you know them, Lord. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who are already Christians, Lord, we look at a passage like this and we see how weak we are. We see that it's so easy to be presumptuous in our praise, in the things that we say, in the promises that we make, and Lord, we confess that we are sinners. Lord, please forgive us. Please forgive us for sinning against you in these different ways. Please help us to see the specific ways, if there are any specific ways in which each one of us have done this so that we can repent specifically and resolve specifically to turn away from those specific sins. But Lord, most of all, as we do this, above all, I pray that we would see your glory, that we would see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ poured out for us as he died on the cross and rose from the dead three days later. Lord, The Christian life that you've called us to is not a life of bare duty, of empty religious exercises, but it is an abundant life. It is an abundant life, an eternal life, a life with your presence. And we look forward to one day being reunited with you in the new heavens and the new earth, in your presence eternally. There's no temple of God there. It's not needed because you are there. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to worship you wholeheartedly now and to see your grace and appreciate it in new ways. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.